and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you about some exciting things that are going on for myself and my company. First of all, I've got a book coming out. It's called Shift Your Mind. It's about the nine mental shifts that can help you thrive in preparation and performance. If you've listened to the podcast in the past, you know that I feel strongly and have great conviction in this concept, in this framework, that your mindset for preparation should actually be different than your mindset for performance. So the book provides nine binaries, shifts, polarities that you can use to leverage your mindset in both preparation and performance to ultimately help you unlock your potential. I think the book is going to help you. I wouldn't have written it if I didn't believe that. And I'm just excited for you to take a look and take a deep dive into it. So you can buy it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever it is that you like to purchase your books. We're in a lot of indie stores. I know uh, the store that I go and buy books from in Washington, D.C., Politics and Prose, is going to carry the book. So if you are a reader like me, I highly encourage you to check out Shift Your Mind. Poured my heart into it. Poured my soul into it. It Took me three years. I hired a coach to help me make sure that it was going to be well done. And my publishers say it's good. So I hope you'll enjoy the book. Uh, I really am proud of it and excited to share it with the world. And hopefully it'll help you on your journey and your path. Also, we recently launched a new company called Strong Skills. You can check us out at strongskills.co. Over there, you'll see what we're up to. We are trying to reimagine and reshape and disrupt how organizations are thinking about developing their people. For a long time, corporate companies have thought about these inner skills as soft skills, and we are setting out to change how companies develop their people, and we want them to start thinking of them as strong skills. These are skills like communication and leadership and teamwork that we believe are essential for teams to thrive. So check us out at strongskills.co. Come meet our team. You'll see that we have some world-class coaches that have been working in the executive space for some time, and we also have some amazing speakers that put on experiences that we believe are one of a kind and can really transform your organization organization. So go over to strongskills.co and check out what we are up to. Now to today's guest, 
Coach Bob Ritchie is the head coach at Furman University, and you are going to learn really quickly that this guy is sharp. He is with it. He's extremely intentional and thoughtful as he thinks about culture and building systems and mindset and how to unlock his players' potential and ultimately help his team thrive. He recently completed his third season as the head coach at Furman with their men's basketball team, and it's his ninth as part of the program. He served as an assistant coach for a number of years before he became the head coach. And Coach Ritchie has had a lot of success in his young career at Furman. His record is 73 and 26 overall with a record of 41 and 13 in their conference, which is a Southern conference. And he has posted back-to-back 25 win seasons and claimed four straight 20 win seasons for the first time in that school's history. He has a 737 win percentage, which ranks him ninth amongst Division One head coaches. Even though Coach Ritchie is young, just like myself, he is with it. He is sharp. He is, an, he is somebody who is thinking deeply about how to build culture and organization. And I know you're going to love this conversation with him. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Coach Bob Ritchie. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we were connected by Brandon Chambers, who is a basketball coach. And I first met Brandon when he was coaching at Paul the Six High School right outside Washington, D.C., where I was also a mental performance coach for that team. And Brandon is a, a lifelong learner, is somebody who is always trying to create and innovate. And I know he had you on with a bunch of other coaches, and he shared that video with me. And uh, as I was watching, I was like, man, this guy's on it. And so I'm excited to learn from you today. I'm excited for you to share a lot of what I learned just in that that brief interview that you did with Brandon, with my community and the people that listen to this podcast. Um, but what, what you didn't talk about during that interview, and I've heard you on a few other podcasts, is your background and your upbringing. And so I'd love to just start there and, and get to know how you became you and, and what that what life was like for you as a kid. Yeah. So, um, you know, my dad was a physician growing up and, uh, you know, my mom raised the three boys, you know, in terms of, you know, just making sure that I was in the middle. I had an older brother and a younger brother and, um, you know, highly competitive environment, you know, got me into sports early. Basketball has kind of always been in my family. My, my uncle actually played with Pistol Pete for a little bit and I had somebody else in my, my family that was that was a, a great uncle that ended, was also a division one head coach, at, at, you know, back in the 80s. And so, um you know, one of my first gifts that I can ever remember was was a yellow basketball in Louisiana, you know, because everything because of LSU is, is, is yellow, gold, whatever you want to call it in the bayou. But uh, just just was always my passion. You know, I love playing and um, love going out and shooting. I'd stay out there for hours. And so got into the game early. And um, really, I'll be honest with you, when we moved to South Carolina, lived in Louisiana till about first grade and uh, we moved to Columbia. And I used, I used to always go to South Carolina basketball camp and uh, we'd go to all, a lot of the basketball games as well. And I just remember at a young age, just, just watching coach Fogler and just thinking, you know, this has to be the coolest life, you know, like this, this guy gets to be around the game. He gets to coach it for a living. He gets to compete. He gets to impact people. And uh, just, I just had this idea, like, you know, how do these guys get to do this? You know, and, and I got really intrigued in coaching, you know, at a young age. And in fact, you know, I can remember it's, it's probably in middle school, you know, when Lou Holtz came to Columbia and, and watching him turn that football program around and the way he did it and reading the articles in the state newspaper and then following the recruiting of Derek Watson between South Carolina and Tennessee. Like I would literally get I would listen on sports talk, you know, at like seven o'clock at night just to figure out, you know, what was going to happen with Derek Watson. 
And so I got enthralled with the recruiting piece. I got, I got enamored with obviously the competitive and the basketball piece, but also like the program building. And so, you know, played high school ball, ended up being division two player, finished up, you know, in, in 2006. And I just had this idea, you know, and I told my dad, I said, look, business management major, you know, I had a 3.9 GPA. So I had some opportunities to go to grad school. And uh, I just told, I just told dad, I said, you know, what if I just go, go get my MBA, try to be a GA. And then in two years, let's just see where this thing is. And if it looks like it's a viable option to have a career in coaching where I can at some point, you know, support a family early. Cause at this case, at this point in my life, I was engaged. Can, can I get off to a fast enough start to where I can stay with it? If not, then, then, you know, the idea of, of going into the business world and at some point being some type of entrepreneur was always interesting to me. And so I'm going through this process. I worked like seven camps that summer, you know, I'm living out of my car and um, I, I mean, South Carolina, Clemson, Chattanooga, Auburn, Charleston Southern, you know, all these different camps. And, um, you know, I was about to take a GA opportunity and, and Barkley Radeball called me up and he said, look, I, I don't have a GA spot, but I got a director of basketball ops. And, um, you know, it's, we're in the big South. It's a smaller school, but it's division one. You'll get real work. And, and what he meant by that was just like, you'll, you'll get to, you'll get to start out doing some, some, some different things as opposed to regular GA work. And uh, he really convinced me on that idea of just, you know, you, you'll be able to do some things that could impact the program quicker. And so um, I ended Bob, up. Bob, I'm going to pause you real quick. So, so first of all, for those who don't know, GA stands for graduate assistant. So a lot of times uh, programs will have, they have their coaching positions that are paid salaries and they'll, the school will open up a position for someone that's studying in graduate school to they get a scholarship to do their studies and then be a coach on the team, but they can't recruit. There's all kinds of rules around what a graduate assistant is. I want to go back before we keep going forward. Uh, you mentioned three boys. What's the age difference between you and your brothers? So we were all three years. I, I was right in the middle and it was, it was three, three and three. And uh, we were all way different, but you know, we, we were all three boys. So you're like me, I'm, I'm the middle of three boys and two and a half years in between each of us. And we had some battles growing up. Uh, you said they're different. How are they different from you? So I always describe it. You know, we, we had the, we had the academic, we had the athlete and then we had the artist and, um, it's three kind of, kind of just how it all fell into place. You know, my older brother is smarter than all of us. And, um, you know, he had, he had like a 1500 SAT score and, you know, basically got paid to go to college. And so, He's, he was really, really smart. And then my younger brother was in a band and uh, definitely had the, had the best personality of the three and the funniest of the three. And, um, you know, so he's, he's a big time, he's a big time chef and does a lot of things with food and creation and just, just very artsy. And so I was, I was the athlete. I, I didn't, I didn't want to play a video game. I wanted to go outside and actually play the game. And, and, and I just, I was always outside. I was always competing. And, um, but we were, we, we all got along. I would say myself and my younger brother were a little bit closer growing up, but um, you know, we all, we all had, we all lived in this environment. You know, my dad really instilled in us early, you know, the understanding of work ethic, you know, and just, just that that's going to be a separator and, you know, you, everything's earned. And, and one thing is growing up in a doctor's family, he never wanted us to feel that. Like he always was very, he told us early, like, I'm not responsible for your college. Like that's not, that's not for me to pay. Like you got to go, you got to go earn a scholarship and you need to make sure, you know, you're focused in your school. And, you know, we had to earn everything. I mean, even 
even when we got our first car, it was like, hey, you got to put 20 bucks on the counter every Sunday night. I'll pay for your gas. I'll pay for your insurance, but you're going to contribute. And that was always big for him. And I feel like that was a huge part of my upbringing and understanding that, hey, there, we all have dreams and we all have goals. But at the end of the day, like, are we, are we willing to do the work and are we willing to take the responsibility that's going to take for us to be able to get to those goals and accomplishments? And I feel like my dad put instilled that in me. Work ethic and then independence. What, what other values were uh, accessible to you and your brothers when you were growing up? You know, faith was huge in our family, you know, and just, just, you know, making sure that you understood that, that, it, you know, there's, there's a higher purpose in all this. And, um, you know, this isn't just a world that we live in just for ourselves. And even the way we saw him run his, his practice was to help and serve people. And, um, you know, he was big and just making sure that we all, we all knew that, right. This wasn't, he wasn't a doctor just to go out there and make all the money so he can live this great life. Like there was, there was value and purpose in what he was doing. And I can still remember, like, to this day, like, the happiest I probably ever saw my dad was when he knew he saved somebody's life in a particular day, you know, and he would, he would tell us, you know, like, he would name the patient, obviously, or tell us any, but, like, you know, I saved a life today. And that always gave him, like, that I, I could see that as a young kid, like, that gave him push, you know. And so even in our career right now, you know, in a career where I feel like culture is under attack, I feel like you know, you know, the, the, the concept of team is constantly under attack for, for the concept of individualism and with coaches getting fired and the pressure to win, I feel like we have lost perspective and we've lost purpose. And, you know, the coaches that when you get that security and you get that comfortability, then now all of a sudden you can kind of start, you know, working under this umbrella of purpose. But I think for all of us, you know, it's, it's critical that we understand that, that, You've, you've got to be able to find higher purpose in what you do. And, and I think that for us, you know, we try to do that in our program individually and collectively. What do you think of birth order? Uh, I, like I look at my life, I'm a middle child and my younger brother, I was really small and scrawny when I was a kid, really great for basketball. Let me tell you. Uh, so my younger brother was always pretty close in height to me, even though we had a two and a half year difference and people would sometimes be like, are you guys twins? And then I'd give him a little nudge to let him know that I was his big brother but for me, being a middle child, like I, I, I would scrap with both of them. I, I like, I had like a, maybe a grittiness to me, uh, a toughness to me that maybe was a little different, maybe a little chip on my shoulder, a little bit different than my two other brothers was middle child. Anything for you? Did it matter? And, and then the, the second piece of that, do you think birth order, do you think it matters? Do you think it has an impact on, on how people show up? You know, personally, I don't. And, um, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time reading things that, that put me in frameworks because I, I'm, I'm a big subscriber to Built Not Born. And I know I know people, I don't know what the, what the right answer is, okay? But I know for me and my journey and my walk, like I want to control the controllables and I, I want to focus on how we can build better as opposed to, hey, this is something that, this is fixed and you're not ever going to be able to change this. I, I don't want anything to do with that. And I, I feel like, I feel like in society we've, we've, we've used it as a crutch. Like I've got to find a reason why this didn't work out for me. Right. And I think, I think that I, I don't, I don't want anybody to tell me that genetically this is where I'm supposed to be. I don't want anybody to tell me, well, you were born in this order. This is where you're supposed to be. I want to be able to go out there and say, Hey, you know what? I want to go live the best possible life I can live. What's this going to look like? And so I just, I, I always constantly, I mean, I, I just built, not born, you know, and I think there's, 
there's many stories where you can go back in time and the, and the, this, the, the decks against it and, and they, they find success. I want to read about that, right? Like I want to read about, they weren't supposed to make it. They, they defied the odds. How did they do it? And, 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 and I think once you find those stories, it negates all that data, right? Like, cause if, if one can do it, then why can't I do it? Right. Why can't you do it? Why can't we do it? And, and, and I get it. There's things that you got to be aware of and you got to be self-aware. And that's something I'm big on. I'm huge in self-awareness. It's not this whole pie in the sky mentality. You need to be like, I've got some things genetically that I need to know about, right? Like, like there's, there's alcoholism all over my family. Okay. I don't touch alcohol, right? It's not because I think it's bad that, that people will say they drink. I just know what it's done in my lineage, right? Like, so for me, like, I'm not going to be blind to that. Like that is genetic. So I want to, I want to make sure I'm self-aware, but that, that, that element of alcoholism does not have to determine my path, right? I still get to make that choice. Am I going to go down that road and make that decision or not? I'm not, it, it hadn't been forced on me, right? Like I don't have to subscribe to it. But that self-awareness to, to stay clear of it is a discipline that I've had to put in my life. And so, you know, that's something we could talk an hour about. Um, but I feel, like, I feel like in society today, we spend too much time trying to figure out a reasoning as opposed to building a dream and realizing that we can change our circumstances and our minds and our wills are powerful things. Who else influenced you as a kid? Who were the other people that had a big impact on how you see the world? I mean, I think, I think when I go back and think of my coaches, I think obviously, you know, I, I had some key coaches in my life that really helped me. Um, you know, one of my high school coaches, Keith Kelly at St. Louis Catholic was, was a part of my life at a critical time. And my second high school coach, Brad Boche, you know, was, was a part of my life at critical times. Um, you know, but I'm, I've always been curious. I do a lot of reading. I think, I think reading is something where you basically, you pay 20 bucks and you get to interview anybody you want for four hours. You know, like why, why wouldn't we do it? You know? And so I've always, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a big reader early in my life. It was probably once I realized that, that you, you could actually read some books that brought you benefit that you weren't forced to read, you know, and this idea of selecting what we read. But I think, I think probably, you know, again, um, my faith, my family, uh, some of my coaches and then the chosen books that I read to, to try to, you know, filter some of my curiosities were big in my framing. Where do you think that curiosity comes from? I would, I would have to say, you know, my, my, my parents a good bit, you know, I think my dad, my dad's incredibly curious. I mean, he was, you know, his first grade, he decided to go back to school and get another specialty, you know? And so, you know, that was, that's kind of in, in my blood, I think of just of always wanting to learn and, um, you know, always wanting to try to improve. You mentioned parents. What about mom? What, what was her role in your upbringing and, and talk about her a little bit? Yeah, huge. I mean, she chose to stay at home with all three of us and, uh, you know, as busy as dad was, I mean, she was the one that, that kept everything together, you know, for the most of the days. And so she was, she was somebody that again, you know, held a high standard. I mean, it was, it was, I think in, in our house, there was a high standard and, and it was known. It wasn't something that, that they were apologetic for. It was, it was, this is, this is what we expect. And this is what we, we, we want you to do. And, and, and we're going to hold you accountable to that. And so, you know, we, we were asked to do a lot. And, um, you know, I think that she was a big part of that. And, um, you know, so she was her presence and, and, and her ability to hold us to a standard, you know, on a day to day basis, I think was critical in, in, in my upbringing. Are you more like mom or more like dad? 
I think both, you know, I, I think, I, I think that, I, I think I can see clear signs of both in my life. And, um, you know, I think that there's, there's things from my dad that, that are clearly similarly in, in, in my personality and there's things from my mom. And so I don't know if I lean one way or the other, I, I can see, I can see clear takeaways from both. And why basketball? What was the draw to basketball from a young age? There's just no better feeling than that ball going in the net. And, and I, and I felt it when I was like four years old, you know, I don't know what it is. I'm sure not everybody has it. Uh, but, but I just feel like when that ball goes in the net, that was, that was just, it felt better than a, than a ball hitting a bat for me. You know, it, it felt better than, than catching a football. Um, it felt better than, than swinging a golf club. It just, there was something when I threw that ball in that net and it went in, there was just a feeling that kind of stuck with me. And, um, you know, it was my drive. It was, I wasn't some crazy athlete. I was 5'11", but I'd sit out there and shoot for hours. And uh, it, was, it was a way for me, you know, to, to, have, to have a craft in that game that I could be a lead at. And, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of routine. There was a lot of work ethic. There was a lot of drive within that that, that obviously was, was very critical in my development. But there, there was just some, even to this day, man, if I go out there and pick a ball up and I throw one in, like there's just, there's something internal in that. It's funny, uh, yesterday, my family has a mountain house about an hour outside DC and there's no cell service. So it's on a couple hundred acres uh, and we've got a basketball hoop there. And uh, I was up there with my buddy and he had a basketball and because we're still in this sort of social distancing weird stage, like he brought his ball. So he's shooting like beyond the NBA three, uh, almost between like the NBA three point line and half court. And you know, he's just chucking it. And I only had like this little soccer ball. So I started shooting the soccer ball and no grip. And I'm just like letting it fly. And the two of us as our kids are like on their scooters flying around, we're just <laughs> shooting shots. And it was amazing because our competitive spirit started to come out. He made one. I'm like, all right, I got to get one. And you're, you're right. That feeling, it's still, it, it, it's a pleasure that you get when you see that ball go through the hoop. It's special. Um, I think other sports, right? When you hit a golf ball flush, you feel that. When If you ever hit a, a ball over a fence in baseball or whatever sport you're playing softball, uh, it, it's similar too. But I agree with you. You snap that wrist and that ball goes through the net. It's, it's just, it's a beautiful feeling. So there's something kinesthetic about that that's, that's just really, really nice. You mentioned first grade uh, transitioning to a new state. And what was that transition like for you? Do you have any memories of, of switching schools? A lot of times for kids, when they have to move, there's, there's just stuff that pops up. Was there anything for you as you were transitioning from Louisiana where it sounds like you had this real pride for the state and grew up you know, watching LSU and now you're moving to South Carolina? Was there anything about that transition that impacted you? Yeah, you know, I went to seven different schools in 12 years. And, and so I actually moved a few times. And, and I feel like, I feel like as I did it more, I got better at it, you know, and I think I think the idea of being able to adapt and, and understanding that, you know, change, change is inevitable, you know, the, the really, really, when you look at it, you are always afraid to change, we're always afraid to be put in a new environment. And, and I think as you're a young kid, that can be a, that can be harder because you go in and, and these cliques are formed and these kids have grown up together and they know each other. And I think I had to work through that, you know, elementary school and even middle school. I uh, felt like I felt like, you know, basketball as I got better and older. That was like the quick connector, you know, like, like when I got when I made the change, you know, as middle school and high school and you got on a team, it was, it was easier to adapt as opposed to elementary school, you're walking into a classroom, you're sitting there, you don't know anybody. 
Uh, it's a little bit harder, but you know, not being afraid of it. You know, I think I think early you're afraid of that change. And you know, I remember finding out one of the first times we were going to move, and I just remember being you know crying and just like, how is this going to work, and what is this going to be, and just the unknown. And then I think you know, six months later, being able to look back and say, hey, you know what, it, it did work out, right? Like I, I do have new friends, and we do have a good house, and I've got a good school, and this is good, you know, and, and I think, I think being able to adjust and adapt to that was, was big and, and, and learning how to adapt. You know, we started, before we started recording, we, we sort of were checking in on how each other are doing and we are in this unknown space right now, like the unknown of what's going to happen in the fall Is sports going to be here. What are we going to be able to do? Is it going to be in a packed arena or an empty arena? There are just a lot of unknowns. And then I hear you talk about agility and, and building agility and, I think there's something to the ability to develop a relationship with the unknown and to remain agile within that space that is where resilience lives. And so I'm, I'm so curious. Grit has been talked about a lot and studied, but to me, there's a distinction to be made, to be made between grit, resilience, and agility. And for me, at least, I think you can have grit and or have agility and that's where resilience occurs because grit if you take angela duckworth's definition passion and perseverance toward long-term goals is more like the stick the willingness to stay stay the course and and keep finding a way whereas agility i think is just a little bit different it's that ability to adapt to be flexible to find solutions it, i there's to me there's like a distinction there and both of those are where resilience lives have you given that any thought because i know you know, those are things that are massive for any coach or any program or, or any culture, really. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think I think passion and perseverance are great, but they're only great if they're channeled to the right things. And I think that's where agility comes into play. Like you've you've got to, you know, I've heard I've heard people say like, I'm just going to keep pushing. Well, if you're if you're pushing down the wrong path, it's not going to work, right? Like like fish can swim all day in the water, but, but you put them on the coastline and they can, they can have all the perseverance and the passion they want, but they, they, they won't be able to live. Right. And so it's the same thing. If a plane's going down and it's not following the laws of aerodynamics, well, we're just going to keep pushing here. We're just going to stay, we're going to keep persevering and we're going to, we're passionate about how we're flying this plane. Well, it, it's going to end bad. Right. And so I, I, I think those characteristics are critical. But if my passions aren't aren't balanced, if they're not in line, if they're not if they're not in the in the critical pass, and if they're not in the boundary of what can give me that success, my perseverance can end up being a really bad thing, right? And so that's where the agility and the the self awareness, as I alluded to earlier, is my path right? You know, like am I following the rules of aerodynamics if I'm flying a plane? You know, am I am I am I in the the water, right, so to speak? To that now now all of a sudden for me like. I feel like that's where you find freedom. And, and I, I don't think, you know, as humans, we're constantly, this word freedom's all over the place, right? Like we want freedom. We want, we want to be constrained. We don't want any constraints. We want to be boundaryless and we want to, we want to find this idea of leisure. But at, but at the end of the day though, like you've got to have some type of railroad tracks that are putting you in the path and in the direction to where I'm going towards something. Right. And, and, and this is what I'm chasing. And so, yes, I do agree with you. Passion's critical perseverance is critical, but the ability to have self-awareness in checking your path. And then if, and if you're not going down the right path to be able to move and having the humility to make that adjustment and having that agility, I think that's just as important. 
What do you do to check on yourself to make sure your your tracks are are going in the right direction? What do you do to make sure your your blind spots are not getting in the way and derailing you? Yeah, so so fortunately, you know, the Lord's put in front of me a lot of people that that you know, even outside my parents now to this day that that check on me and that that I have in my life as truth tellers and and they know, you know, I was on the phone last night with one. We talk all the time at 8:30 at night and he knows from my directive, you can tell me anything you have to tell me. Okay. Like, like you have permission to be the truth teller in my life. And a lot of times we're afraid of that. You know, like we don't, we don't want that accountability for me. I want to acknowledge there are things in my life that I don't have the answers to. And there are things in my life that I cannot see. And if there's people that care enough about me that they're, they're going to try to help me in those areas, then I want to make sure I have that, that boundary and that structure set up in my life. And so, you know, that would be first, I would say, make sure you have a network above you that cares about you and that understands your values and can keep you in line with those values. Second, when you say above you, what do you mean by that? Just like, like, and when, when we're in leadership, one of the, one of the biggest, one, one of the biggest, I think, downsides to it is now we feel like we're always leading below us, right? Like we have a staff and we have people that have to listen to us, okay? And now like we don't have that person, quote unquote, above us that can sit there every single day and say, hey, you're doing this wrong, right? Like, and, and, and what happens is, is a lot of times like a CEO, well, they've got the board. Well, the board doesn't see their day to day, right? Like for me, like I've got an AD. Jason and I are very close. Jason doesn't follow me around all day. You know, like my president doesn't follow me around all day. So I've got this ability to manage my day and my time, well, who, who is checking my decisions, right? Who, who are the ones? And so I'll, I'll invite people to staff meeting and, and I'll invite people that have, you know, maybe they've led a company, they've led a business and I'll say, well, you just come in and listen and then, and then, and then, and then do it for a week. Right. I, I did this. Like I had, I had a person that was basically a senior partner in Erston Young, high, high up before retirement. And I just said, look, will you come sit in a staff meeting for a week? And I want, I want all the bad, Right. And, you know, today at four o'clock, we've got somebody actually it's Brandon. How about that? All things work, work in circles. Right. So Brandon's been watching a lot of our film and he was sending me some great clips and he was like, hey, this plays great. This plays good. And I told Brandon, I said, I want you to watch these losses. OK. And I want to talk about why we got our bus kicked. Right. Like and, he, and he's probably looking at it like, man, you lost seven games this year. Like, what, what, what are you worried about? But like, that's the information I want. Right. And so. You've got to put people around you, even when you get to a point of leadership where you feel like, okay, now I control my schedule, my day, my decisions. What are your filters, right? And then, and then I also think this is big. I think you've got to be open to reading things and, and, and being curious about items that you know that you struggle with, right? Like, you know, and you've got to get outside of like, I've got it all figured out. Like when all this came open, like I'd never, I'd never led remotely. I'd never looked at a Zoom call. So what I do, like, I went and asked a couple of people in the business world, like, what's the best book on long distance leadership? Right. And I went and read one because I wanted to know, like, where are some struggles that, that people have already figured out that, that long before me, where maybe I can lead our staff better. Same thing. Like what, like for me, there's this book that I read about a month ago. It was called the ruthless elimination of hurry. And my wife had it and it was on our bedside table. And I looked at it and it was like, it was like subconsciously you look at it and you're like, if I read that, that's going to mess me up. Okay. And so it's like, nah, I don't read it. Right. And, and we have these internal wars of like, I, I don't really want to address my blind spot. Okay. I know there's something in that book that I probably need, but 
And so what I did was I, I, I started waking up, you know, 6.30 in the morning and I would grab it. And before long, I was done within four days. And it, it was probably the most convicting book I've read over this stretch. And there were, and, and I'm, I'm terrible at all of it, but it was all truth. Like, it was like, it was like, man, you've got to redirect some of this in your life. And so being open to that, I think it gives us an opportunity to grow. And I think as leaders, if we're not, and we think we've got it all figured out and we've risen to this point because we've got all the answers, I think, I think it's just going to be, you know, soon long enough before you're kind of back to where you started. One of my favorite things to do when I do retreats for people is to have them write down before we start the retreat that in the domain of coaching, if, if it's a bunch of coaches, I'm a novice. And in the domain of coaching, I'm an expert. And how do you remain a novice when you're on a retreat or you're trying to learn or you're reading a book while still making sure that when you're in between the lines, you're an expert. And I think you can really be both. And I know you can be both. And so I love that you take that approach and you sort of are leaning into the discomfort of things that are uncomfortable. And then the other piece that I really want to just pull on, which is an important thread for all of us to remember, is that just because you read something that exposes some of your blind spots or downsides, it doesn't mean that you need to go back and change who you are. Like what got you here is really important. And so whenever I coach people, I always say to them, I'm not trying to change you, but we're going to look underneath the hood and see what's there. And then you're going to decide what you want to do going forward. And so there's a great phrase up until now, like I've been this way up until now, you can choose to stay that path or you can shift and go down a different path. And it goes back to sort of, you were alluding to earlier, the growth mindset, right? The idea that, you know, I'm not there yet and I, I'm, nothing's fixed. And that notion that I, I'm still a work in progress. And I think the mistake that many people make is that they think that they will arrive. And then once they arrive, like <laughs> they stop learning or they stop growing. And the best leaders that I've been around, like they're, they're still growing and they're still becoming. Um, and so it's cool as I hear you say that. What was your main takeaway from that book? Um, and the title is maybe pretty apparent, but was it to help you slow down and, and be more mindful or what, what was the big takeaway? You know, there's, there's a bunch from it, but I, I would say this, you know, it's, it's, it's written by a, a pastor from Oregon that was just going, 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 and you know, all these churches going all over the place and, and basically just kind of start breaking down in different areas because it was just go, go, go. And, um, you know, the, the most interesting point, regardless of your faith, regardless of your beliefs, we've all acknowledged that we need this element of silence and solitude, right? Like, like if, if you're a faith, it's, it's this idea of quiet time and, and meditation and prayer. If not, though, like how much do you hear in the world right now? Mindfulness, right? Like, like and so regardless of, of if you're a Christian, if you're a Buddhist, if you're a secularist, like whatever you are we've all understood that like we really need this moment as we start the day as a human being to just be quiet for a little bit. Right. But, the, but, but what the, what the industry and what the marketing and all the things that we're getting, it's like, Hey, listen to this and put these headphones in your ear and make sure this music's going and, you know, watch this movie and watch the, listen to this podcast. When are we being quiet? You know, like when are we, when are we being silent and, and, and what does that look like for us? And so, you know, that was probably the most convicting part. I just want to wake up and get going, right? Like I, 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 
you know, somebody asked me yesterday, do you fish? It's like, no, like, why would I fish? Why would I sit out there for two hours to get two glimpses of glory? Like, it's the same reason I didn't play soccer, right? There's not enough goals, right? Like, I love basketball. You can score 100 points. Like, that's just, that's just my personality. Like, I, I want action. And so that was probably the most convicting part of it, um, you know, from a, from a faith standpoint, the idea that obviously, you know, God worked six and he rested one. And if God's got to rest and, and, and Bob sure has to rest. And what does that rest look like? I've got to do a better job with that. And that doesn't mean I'm less busy, right? Like that's not me saying that, that I don't have to be busy and that, that, but that's, that is me saying that I've got to make sure, you know, it's the hot, it's the old river versus the flood idea, right? Like you, you've got boundaries with water going in force in a river, whereas the flood is the same amount of water. It's just spread out with no boundaries. It's just sitting there. So I need more silence and I need more pockets of, of quiet and stillness so that my force in those, in those elements of work can be stronger and better. I love it. I think Edison, if we're going to talk about fishing, used to go fishing without bait and he'd wake <laughs> up every morning and go fishing without bait. And uh, he did that because it was quiet and, quiet. and no, one, no one bothered him. And so he would just be there. And, you know, that's one of the best inventors of all time. And uh, I think you're, you're, you're on it because creativity, it lives in that space. And like when we create space for ourselves, that's where ideas come. And if we're always just going, a lot of times the ideas, they, they won't percolate and they won't come to the, to the forefront. So I, I love what you're doing with that. I think for a lot of the sports coaches that I'm around, there has been this idea that you just grind. Um, you know, if you're not coaching in a game, you're watching film. If you're not watching film, you're in practice. If you're not watching practice, you're recruiting. Um, and so it's this constant cycle where there's no space. And I think I've talked to a bunch of sports coaches over the last couple of months, and a lot of them are struggling with it because they're used to just competing and having competition, whether that's in practice or in games. Talk to an NBA coach. It's like 82 games. Like they're just competing every night. And then if they're not competing, they're looking at free agency, the draft. It's, like, it's a nonstop cycle. And I joke to people in the sports industry that, you know, when's the best time to reach out to somebody in the sports industry? Never. Like there's never a time where they're like, Oh, I'm good now. Like let's, let's chat. So I, I am so interested in coaches and where that sports coaching will go because I'll take football, for example, you know, historically the idea of a football coach is that they sleep in the office. Like that's the thing. Like they have a bed in the office and there are, there are coaches like Bruce Arians, for example, who says, you know, that's ridiculous. We don't need to do that. And there are other football coaches now that you are, are hearing come out and say, no, we don't need to do that. Pete Carroll. Um, so, but, but it is the culture of sports coaching, at least historically has been that it's a grind and you're going to grind and you're going to go a million miles an hour. And I'm just so intrigued by the idea of space and what happens when you actually take a step back to be more strategic and thoughtful um, and give yourself just space to be healthy. Um, I think you can't coach if you're unhealthy. I don't care, like, you know, how, how strong you are. Uh, you're about to say something, so I just want you to go. What's, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I learned some of this the hard way, Brian. Like, we, we won 25 games after my second year, and it was the most in school history. We beat Villanova. Uh, we were ranked for three weeks in the top 25. And, and you know, I'll be honest with you. Like, I, I got to the summer, and we went on this foreign trip, and, you know, we were losing our best player, Matt Rafferty, and uh, we played awful. And, you know, in, in terms of the standard of what I felt like, you know, hey, where's this thing going forward? And, you know, I started waking up in the middle of the night. You know, we, we got Gardner-Webb and Loyola. You know, that's the first two games on our schedule. Gardner-Webb just went to the tournament. Loyola, obviously, we know this. Like, what if we go 0-2? And, and I, it just got me to a point of just emptiness. You know, like, like 
we had won all these games and it kind of just hit me like there's no quench to this right like there, there's no quench to all this if if you go in one right we just saw the last dance i mean in the accumulation of all 10 episodes the greatest player of all time gets on there and, and the biggest frustration he has is that he didn't get a chance to go for seven, right? Like, like, did we miss that? Like as, 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 as society and in our world, did we miss that? Right? So desire has no quench. Okay. But purpose can, right. And so, so for me, I had to really recalibrate. I had no, I had no margins. It was wake up, grind, go, We've got to be the best. This is we're going to be the best program in Furman history, and we're going to go do this. Right? My family was suffering, my health was suffering, my my relationships were suffering, and it was all in a chase of a moment. Right? Like when you cut that net down, it's a moment. Right? Like that's not a destination. Okay? Like if you go cut that net down and you have a bad year the next year, like nobody cares about that net anymore. Right? Like nobody cares about that ring. Like it, it's it's a moment. But if we look at this as like, what are we doing this for? And, and I could go on a huge tangent here. I think the game is under is under attack in this area. And I think it's why we have all these transfers. And I don't mind saying that um, I'm, I'm on staff meeting this morning. I mean, we got we got basketball staffs offering 40 kids in a class for three spots. Right. Like there we've lost perspective. We've lost. What are we doing this for? We say it's to impact people. If it's really to impact people, then why don't we have more systematic structures in place to actually impact people? And why is there so much coming and going? And why aren't parents and kids starting to ask more questions about what are we doing all this for, right? And so the, one of the most proud moments for me as a coach, I mean, there's three programs in the last three years that have, in the last four years that have perfect APRs, which is, which is basically graduation and retention, and have averaged 24 wins a year. And it's us, Villanova and Belmont. And that puts feet on what we're saying as a program that we're going to try to grow people. And, and if that's if that's my mission to grow people, right, and that the player is going to be a byproduct of that growth, then me as a leader, guess what? I've got to be growing and I've got to understand that you can't pour anything out of an empty cup and I've got to make sure my cup is full. And I spent a lot of this year doing that. And, um, you know, I probably watched one less game on an opponent. You know, I probably went to bed a little bit earlier. And, and if we got in late, you know what, I might have slept in an hour, but my health was better. My relationships were better. And guess what? We won 25 games again and our program didn't go in the tank. And so that's that's a big that's a big area for me right now in our industry. I love what you're saying. Look, grind is a word that gets used in every sport. Hockey uses it. Golf uses it. Basketball uses it. Those sports are very different. They all use the term grind. And I've always said, like, I don't want to grind my way through life. Like, that's not. That's not success for me. If it is for you, then so be it. Like, that's cool. And I think about the images that we often portray and it's like, you know, embrace the grind, embrace the grind. And I'm always like, well, I understand you have to do hard things to do great things. That's not, that's not it. But like, uh, I'm not Mr. Don't work hard. Like, of course, working hard is a baseline. It's foundational. It's fundamental. And, and to your point, so is competitiveness. Like Jordan's competitive spirit absolutely is something that we should all watch and think about. Like, how do we bring out that drive uh, for greatness and do it with purpose? And I think the mistake that people run into is they think that satisfaction is the enemy of success. And actually, the first basketball team I worked with um, and as an internship was with this awesome coach, shout out to Randy in San Francisco and brilliant guy. And they had just went to the state championship the year before. So they had these shirts that said satisfaction is the enemy of success. And I said, 
you know, I was, I was young and I had to be careful there, but I sort of said, I don't know about that. Like, I think satisfaction, everything I'm reading is satisfaction is linked to happiness and fulfillment. And those are really important things. But what I came to was complacency is the enemy of success. The moment you're complacent, you're not growing, you're not developing, but we should all be satisfied that I gave the, my most effort. I tried the best that I could. I, I learned, I grew, I developed. Uh, you know, I reflected on what I need to do to get better. Like I should be satisfied with that. And so as I'm hearing you talk, I'm hearing someone like I can put my head on the pillow at the end of the day, knowing that, Hey, I'm satisfied. I gave today a, a, a good day's work. And if I didn't, tomorrow's a new day and I'm going to get after it tomorrow. But we, we often, those words like grind and grit sound alike, but they're very different. Satisfaction and complacency, they sound alike, but if you really drill down, they're different. And I just believe that vocabulary is so important because how we articulate words to people turns into our culture, which drives our behavior. And so um, as I'm hearing you talk, it's just refreshing because I, I feel like it's the future. And I, I'm actually very bullish when I talk to you and when I talk to other coaches who are doing amazing things, there, there is a more awareness now. There is there of course are there are coaches that are not, but I'm hearing a discussion now of like what does success look like? And John Wooden was talking about what success was years ago. This isn't new, but I'm I'm optimistic that if we increase the self awareness like you talked about earlier, then we can look at well, what am I doing to grow? What am I doing to rest? What am I doing to develop myself? And we all need to do that. So um, anyway, it's, it's it's awesome to hear you talk. I want to go back a little, connect the dots real quick. So you talked about you, you get the job as director of basketball ops and, and now you're, you're in it. Now you're in this coaching world. And you said earlier, like from a young age, I kind of looked at those people and said, gosh, I would love to do that. You're, you're 22, you know, 22 years old, 23 years old. Uh, you're coaching dad, dad supporting you as you go on this journey. I mean, dad's a physician. So he went on to, you know, school. And uh, I, I know what director of basketball ops people make out of college. And uh, you said you had a three, nine. Were people around you thinking you're crazy to, to go on this journey or were they fully supportive? What was, what was that like for you? I would, I would say it was a mix. You know, I think, I think people, nobody wanted to necessarily kill my dream. I think they wanted me to be aware, you know, you got to support a family and this, this, you know, you need to be able to measure that as we go. One thing I left out was I took the, I took the ops job mid July and um, I was actually on vacation with my fiance's family two weeks later. Barkley calls me back and says, hey, our third assistant just took a junior college job and I'm going to bump you up. And wow. uh, it was kind of the break, you know, that I was able to be a third assistant right out of college. And so, you know, dad monitored it, you know, and, and, and he had some different ideas along the way. And, and he was a little bit, you know, he, he was a little bit worried early, you know, because it just it's 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 a it's a field where, you know, you're you're your monetary gains come a little bit exponentially as you grow in it. It's very hard early, but um, I had a lot of support and uh, I had a lot of people that wanted to see us push through. And, you know, there, there, there came a couple of times of crossroads where my wife was huge, to be honest with you. My wife was probably the one that, you know, she, she, she worked and finished her degree at the same time that we were making, you know, a very, very small amount of money. And then, you know, we, we had our, first child, Audrey, who's now 10, beautiful little girl. And, you know, I'm making $32,000 a year. And both of our parents, our moms decided to stay home with us. And that was just a commitment that we were wanting to do. And I remember, you know, I looked at her and I said, you know, I got to go do something else. And uh, she said, no, you don't. This is what you love. And this is what you're going to do. And we're going to figure it out. And um, so fortunately, I've got, I've got a big time wife. I've had a lot of support. And, um, 
they were able to, they were able to help me in those, in those moments where we just had to keep fighting. We're going to continue to connect the dots, but I'm gonna, I did cut you off earlier. So you were talking about making sure that you've got people that are quote unquote above you that are, are helping you. And then you were going to say in number two, and I cut you off. And I think you were about to say, you know, also learning from people that are quote unquote below you or however you think of that. Well, when I say above you, I'm, I'm, I'm more so saying that in terms of the journey, you know, I think, I think that they're older than you that have, that have been through it, that, that experience, that can see some mistakes, you know, that can take you on a walk and just say, Hey, you know, you got to get healthier. You know, you got to get an exercise routine going and, you know, you may, well, I don't have time. What does that matter? Like if you, you know, and so that, that's what I'm talking about there. The second part was just, being comfortable reading and growing in areas of uncomfortability, right? And just just not being so. I think a lot of times we have a pretend, we have a propensity to read about the things we already know a lot about, right? Because we think like well, I'm going to watch more film, or I'm going to read more coaching books, or I'm going to read. And so I'm just going to try to keep pushing down these same avenues. What about the weaknesses, right? What about what about the blind spots? You know, what about the things that might not be going as well? And and a lot of times for us when we're experiencing all this success, quote unquote in our industry, a lot of times we don't like to feel that idea that, you know what, maybe we're not doing this as well. You know, maybe I need to be being a better husband. So I need to go get a book on marriage and I need to read it my wife and I need to carve out some time to make sure that I'm, I'm excelling there too. Right. And so those, those, those are ideas for me that I've tried to do better in, 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 in my growth as a person. And um, I think for leaders that we got to make sure that we're fighting in all areas of life and not just being so so singular in our focus that it can be damaging in all other areas. Do you believe you could be great at all those areas or do you believe that it's impossible to be great in one and then to be great in the other? Like, do you believe you can have it all? What's your, what's your thought on that? So I, I do think my thought on that is I think that if you have proper habits and disciplines and routines that the, 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 the flow can merge in all those different areas. Right. And so if I'm disciplined in my planning, then that can that can make me a better a really good coach. That can make me a better husband because we're on a court. You know what I mean? Like if if I'm if I'm practicing, if I'm if if I have a workout routine, right? Well, that's going to go into all those areas, right? That's going to help me manage my stress, which is going to make me a better this, that, and that. So for me, I don't think you have to necessarily compartmentalize. Like, okay, right here, I'm 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 a better coach, right? Well, usually a lot of things that make me a better coach, in turn, they also make me a better dad. Right. Like like it's it's discipline and accountability and high standard with deep care and making sure those two are the same. So, you know, I don't necessarily look at my life and say, okay, where am I in this category? Right. Like, where am I in this category? I try to look at it a little bit more holistically and say, all right, what what areas need to come up where everything can be benefited? And um, I don't think we're ever there. Right. Like, I don't, I don't think this idea of greatness I don't, I don't want you to come in and meet Amar and say, Hey, you reach greatness. Like that's, that's a nightmare of mine. Like I want to know I'm 37, uh, that there's still a lot of areas I can continually get better in. And I want to keep trying to pursue that. When you think about that idea of greatness, what, what does come up for you? Like, what do you consider to be greatness? ability to influence somebody else that they want to try to be their best version of themselves. And, you know, me making sure that I'm in a position to be able to do that. You know, that, that if, if my greatness is all about me, I, I just, 
I, I feel like that's fleeting, you know, but if, if my search for greatness can impact somebody else to the, where they want to go be the best version of themselves and we can influence that, then that, that gives me a, a higher purpose. And you mentioned routines and habits. What are some of the routines that you do to make sure that you're at your best? So the first one I, I talked about is just, is just trying to find that quiet space, you know, and I think just being able, you know, small ones that I'm not perfect at right now, but one I am trying to implement is just not grabbing the phone first thing when you wake up and it's, it's a very bad habit, but trying to have that quiet time in the morning where you can sit down and grab a cup of coffee and, you know, just, just think, you know, sit there and pray and whatever you need to do to kind of get your mental space right that day. I think that's a big one. I think obviously finding time to exercise is huge. I didn't always believe in this. You know, I, I thought that I had the ability to, as you said, grind at a pace different than other people and that I didn't need the sleep and I didn't need the exercise that I just was unique and um, it wasn't right. And it took me a little while to figure that out. And unfortunately, when you find out like it's, it's hard, you know, and so I invested in a, in a, in a space in my basement where, you know, I've got, a, I've got an exercise bike down there and, um, you know, if it's 20 minutes, you know, if I go down there and just pedal a little bit, I did some yoga this year, you know, just to try to, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit like typical type A, I can get tight. And so just doing things to, to obviously help the body. Um, and with that, I, th I think, I think the way we eat, you know, I think, I think, again, I'm not always perfect there, but I think that, you know, the more that we can make good decisions in terms of what we put in our body and eating things that, that, you know, can reward us in a way, um, again, it just goes to where I can, I can, if I've got energy and I can make it through a day and I can maintain that energy, then, then I can impact more people and I've got to be more accountable to those decisions that will allow me to have that type of energy. How much sleep do you typically get? So now I would say in the last year, I'm, I don't want to get less than seven. And, um, you know, if, if, if I, if I've got to, you know, the discipline for me in sleep is so much more about when I choose to go to bed as opposed to when I get up. And again, I'm a little bit weird, but I can, from 10 to 12, man, I can get some stuff done. I mean, I, I just, there's another gear where like, I'll feel, t I'll, I'll start to get a little tired at nine. If I can make it to 10, I've got this two hours where I can just go. And, and I've, I've really had to adjust that a little bit. And, um, you know, I've tried to go to bed more so 10, 30 to 11. And, um, and I want to try to get seven no more than eight. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't, for me, my, my body, I can feel kind of a, uh, you know, when I oversleep, I can feel that as well, but, um, I definitely don't want to abuse, abuse sleep anymore. And meditation, do you have any sort of practice that you do? You mentioned not looking at the phone first thing in the morning. Um, you, you've mentioned sort of prayer, you've mentioned reading. Is there anything that you are doing on a daily basis? Like you said earlier, mindfulness can take, you can use that word in multiple different ways, but what do you do to try to have that during that quiet time, as you called it? You know, for me in my quiet time, it's, it's going to be more, you know, as, as a believer, it's going to be more prayer and it's going to be more, you know, you know read, read my Bible and just trying to find an area where I've got to, I've got to grow or that I need to focus on. And then, and then really, to be honest with you, just having that time where I can just sit there, you know, and I can just reflect and I can just listen. And um, again, I'm not always great at it, but I'm going through a book right now, you know, a little bit similar to what we're talking about, but every good endeavor. And um, it's written by Tim Keller and it's just talking about this idea of work. And um, it's good for me right now in the pause of just being able to go through that and think and, and make sure, you know, everybody's talking about like, we got to win the weight, you know, we got to come out of this better than we came into it. And it's all like productivity driven, right? 
for me though, if I, if I can hit pause in this time and, and I can, I can make sure my priorities are in better alignment, you know, and I can make sure my days are better structured. That that's the areas that I'm trying to win right now. I know, I know my work capacity and I know the things that we're doing well for me. Like, I, I just want to look at this. I'm 37. Like, you know, my kids are going to be out of here in 10 to 12 years. Like that, I don't want to be sitting back regretting anything. And so I'm using this to really kind of restructure my priorities a little bit. It's clear that you are clear on how you want to show up and how you're thinking about things at 37. What were you like when you were 27? Uh, take us back there. And you mentioned earlier that you were able, your capacity for maybe pain was pretty strong. Uh, you know, maybe you've got your firstborn. Uh, just take us back to the mindset then, because perhaps somebody's listening to this that's more at the 27 stage. Some might be at 37, some might be at 47. Uh, but go back to 27. You're not at 47, so we can't really go there. Uh, take us back to 27. Like, what was your mindset like as you were uh, an assistant coach? You know, I'll, I'll say this, probably the, the worst part about when I reflect on 10 years ago is just not having enough faith, to be honest with you, and just spending too much time in fear, worry, and doubt if it didn't work out, right? And so at 27, I'm making $47,000 and, you know, we've got one kid and we, we want to have more and like, is this going to work? You know, and I spent too much time on that. And what it did was it, it, it that, that fear is, is what pushed my workload a lot, right? Because that fear and that worry and that doubt is what drove my work to where my work was probably decent and my work was productive. I wasn't as in tune to the relationships around my work that I needed to be because it was all like, I, this has to work. Right. And so like trusting that, that, you know, I, I can, like I've, I've got the unique ability. I can go into an office at eight in the morning and I could sit in there till midnight if I had to, and I can just, I can just knock it out. But understanding that, you know what, you don't, you don't have to be the last one in the office every day. Like that was, that was my whole deal. Like I, I got pride in knowing that I outwork people that were even on my team, right. And that were even fellow coaches. And it wasn't that I didn't like them. It wasn't that, that, that I thought they were, I, I, I thought they were all good people, but there was a, there was an element of, of pride that came in. Like I'm outworking everybody in this room and, 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 and there probably was some benefit in my production. I just wish I would, if I would have had more faith in those moments that, you know what, it's going to work out, you know, like, like it's going to work out and, 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 and let's make sure that we're in a little bit more balance. You know, I think that would have been a little bit beneficial. Would you, would you do it differently if you were back, if you're back then, would you have like knowing what you know now, would you have actually made behavioral changes to do it differently? I think so. I, I don't think, I don't think my work would have been less. I don't think my drive would have been less. I don't, I don't regret the things I did, right? Like I don't regret the amount of work I put in. I just have a few regrets about things I didn't do, right? And so, you know, could I've had some more space to make sure in the, in the midst of my drive and my push that others around me knew that it, was, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't in a subtraction of them, right? It was just, you know, it, could, I've, could I have, you know, hey, let's go to coffee. You know what I mean? Like, like, Hey, let's, let's have the whole staff over to the house. You know, like, could we have done some things where it, that if I wouldn't have been so caught up and like, I have to go reach this dream, you know, could I have included more people along the way? You know, maybe now, you know, one thing we always did a good job of was player relations and having players at our house. And, you know, you know, that was something my wife's always been fantastic at it. So it's not like I was in a vacuum that was peopleless. I just think that, that, that if I would have, 
if I would have just had more trust and faith and not, not spent so much time. I mean, I can remember Brian, like walking out the office days thinking like, did I do enough? Right. Like, like, did I do enough to, to get where I want to be? Right. Instead of being able to walk out and saying, Hey, you know what? You did do enough. And some of this is out of your control and you're just going to have to have faith. And like, you, you can't let everything else get out of balance. And, and I think that, that that would be that would be how I'd answer that. So it sounds like the shift might not be in the actual work, but your mindset and maybe having some compassion or some grace or whatever word you want to put on it for yourself rather than beating yourself up or, or obsessing or whatever the word is that you would, you would put on it. Yeah. Like the, the whole word empathy, you know, like I'm not good at it. You know, I've got, I've, I've gotten better at it probably as a, as a leader here in the last you know year or so than I did when I was a worker, you know, when I worked for somebody, I was just, my deal was always, I wanted to do the very best job I could do for my boss and my employer. And I felt like, Hey, that was, that was, that was the only Avenue that was important. Right. And so if, and I think what I've learned is like, I, if you look at it, like I was, I was an elite salesman, right? Like, like in sales, like those guys go out and they chase a bottom line. And I was, I was elite at that, right? What, what I wasn't doing in those moments was I wasn't growing and transforming into a leader, right? And so salesmen, a lot of times, if they don't go through that change of learning how to lead others, they, they get promoted of leadership and they fail, right? Because what they were is they were, they were able to do their individual job well. And I think, and, and, and it took me, I would say when I got to be about 30, 31, I started realizing, hey, you need to kind of change how you look at this. But you got to understand too, Brian, like I was, a, I was a average D2 player at best. My first job was at Charleston Southern with an 800 seat gym, right? Six of my 11 years in assistant, we were 300 in Ken Palm, okay? And so like I dealt with a lot of losing. I dealt with a lot of bad facilities. I was in two programs that were in, in shambles at a punt entry. And so for me, like, like there was this chip and this edge, like, no, we're going to do this. Right. So it, it was, it, it, there's, there's this balance that we're all fighting for where it's like, okay, there's a lot of good in that. Like there's some things that like I had two opportunities where people in the business told me that I had job offers that I needed to take them. And I stayed because I wanted to keep fighting and I wanted to keep swinging and I wanted to see it through the completion. And I'm not a head coach today had I not been stubborn and convicted in those moments. And so it's not that I have all this regret. What, what I wish I, I would wish I would have made that transformation a little bit quicker into this. Okay. Now your job is being done well in an individual level. Are you, are you not only a pleasing your boss, but are, are you making the people that, that, that are on the flat structure, right? That you're quote unquote competing with, are you doing things to even make them better? I wish I would have done a little bit more of that. So much good stuff that you just talked about that I'm just not in my head to the salesperson thing is spot on and it's star player often has the same challenge where they can execute at a really high level, put them in a coaching role and it's, it's different. Um, it, it just requires different skills. Um, it's not to say a star player can't transition and do that really well. They can, but uh, it, it, it sometimes requires different skills, just like a sales manager versus a salesperson can require different skills. I also just want to acknowledge this idea, which is I think about people that say, oh, you know, money doesn't matter to me. Well, they're already rich. And so it's easy for them to say now that money doesn't matter to them. And they'll say, I wish I didn't care that much about money when I was younger. But part of 
why they got to the top of the mountain or wherever you want to call that is because they did want that. And so the chip on the shoulder is one thing that I've, I've talked about myself and my upbringing. Like one of the things I've learned is to like, I still have my chip. It's just, I think of a baseball player when they're in the batter's box, like, do they always need to lead with the chip on the shoulder, you know, on the front shoulder in the batter's box, or sometimes do they just need to shift it to the back shoulder and maybe they lead with a different, a skill like empathy. Right. And so I had a baseball player once he was actually a division two baseball player. And he's like, I have a chip on my shoulder. I was overlooked. I should have been a D one baseball player. And he was work, 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 work. And so we talked about, okay, that's fine. But when you step in the batter's box and you're going against a 90 mile an hour fastball, that chip actually isn't helping you. It's actually causing you more stress and more tension and not letting you just relax and just swing the damn bat. And so like I had another client who's a CEO of a nonprofit and he said, I was a fighter growing up. I was a scrapper. I fought for everything I needed. Um, But now I'm trying to save the world and do all this stuff. I'm like, dude, you're still a fighter. You're just using something else, but you're still have that in you. So I think it's important for people just to remember like who you are. It's not always about changing. It's often about creating the awareness like you talked about and then managing and, and being and noticing and observing of when it is in service to you and when it is hindering you. And so uh, I love sort of what you've talked about because I think there's a story there that many people can relate to. It's like they're on this journey. They're going to kick ass and take names. And then they realize, oh, wait a second. I need to actually find out how to bring others with me. We need to strive with, like I love the definition of uh, compete, which is competitory, to strive with. Um, how can we bring other people with us? And that's true competition. The flow state is all about, you're probably at your best when you're competing against, you know, somebody who's a lead in your conference. It brings you to another level. The NCAA tournament, we see it like people can tap into something bigger because they're in that competition space. And too often we think of competition as like, sort of the Michael Jordan, I'm just going to kill you. <laughs> and um, I think there's many different types of competition and that competitive spirit can show itself in, in all kinds of different ways. As, as you become a head coach at a young age, what became abundantly clear for you? You've talked about sort of the grind and, and where you were at with that and the challenges that came with that and the pressure and feeling the weight of wins and losses. How do you show up for, for your people now? I'd love for you to go into what you intentionally do as a program to make sure that you all are, are showing up as your best. Yeah, so you know, for us, our, we have we have a one mission, and that's to grow people. And um, you know, everything we do, the way we phrase that is grow. Period. People. Period. And we want everything in our program to basically be in, in in alignment with those two items. And so, the growth part is critical in terms of our culture and how we want to go about day to day. That that we we have a deliberate mindset to growth. We have an immediacy about it. We have a plan towards it, and that it's not just basketball, right? We want to grow the person. And we want to make sure that they understand if this person grows, then, then that player is going to come along as a byproduct of it. And then the second piece is the people. Sorry. It's all good. I, my kids haven't, my kids haven't, my kids haven't jumped in through the door yet. So I'm, I'm good on my end. They, they're napping right now. So they could be coming through the door any moment now. So your pup is, is doing what pups do. Well, my kids just were coming in the back door. So that's there you why, go. That's why he's <laughs> So, uh, but no, the second part of that is the people part of it. And, you know, understanding that this is a people business. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the production that we have to have to win and not lose games. A lot of people have gotten in this idea of process, which I do agree with that. But I think overall that is still people, right? If you have a big time process with average people, that process is not going to be great, right? 
And, and so the idea of understanding that this is a people driven program uh, has been critical in, in how we do it. And so we don't, you know, we don't have any transfers, you know, we don't, and we don't have guys leaving. We have, in my three years, we haven't had a player leave our program without a Furman degree. And, and I don't know if there's at a other 350, I think it's a rare stat. And so that's, that's where we really put legs on what we do. Um, we do a lot of different things, right? We're going we're gonna to bring in a tailor in the fall, and we're going to get a, a tailor-made suit for all of our players. We're going to teach them how to communicate. We're going to teach them how to present. We're going to teach them how to serve. We're going to teach them how to learn. We're going to teach them how to lead. Um, I've got a mentor program that we have with our players where they basically, a lot of people have that. Uh, we, we try to have it a little bit more organic where it's relationship driven instead of, again, process driven where, hey, they're having to show up and they're having this forum and they're all at these round tables. We want it to be organic and coffee shops and restaurants and going to a house and, you know, different things like that where they're being put in touch with people inside the firm and network that can allow them to, answer, to ask the right questions. And so I, that's where I always check myself, right? Like when I go through adversity or when we have bad, we have hard moments, right? Like, are we committed to our mission? Okay, is this, is this Bob driven or is this, is this growing people driven? And, and I think that having that filter is critical. And then I'll tell you this, all right? And this is, this is gonna sound really simple, all right? But this has probably been the best thing for me in my three years as a head coach. And I would tell anybody listening to this that is leading and that is under pressure and under stress, okay? If you haven't listened to anything I've said to this point, uh, please, I ask you, listen to this, because this has been this has been huge for me. We tip off at seven o'clock on most nights, sometimes on the weekends, you know, four o'clock. All right. Game days can be brutal for a head coach. The stress and the pressures and the mental things that go in our head. It's it. You cannot you cannot put an, an, an idea on what what the mental discipline that we have to have as head coaches before we go into battle. And at the end of the day, I had to spend some time peeling back what was creating that. And, and when, I, when I got underneath it all, it's all me driven, okay? It's all, if I lose this game, what does this make me look like? If I lose this game, does this, does this hurt my security? Does this hurt my paycheck? Does this hurt my job, right? And I have this routine I go through now. And it starts when I come home after pregame and, and you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a shower obviously and, and, and you know, get, you know, you got to put the suit on, you got to do all that. And I, and I have a self-talk with myself and it, and it is very clear and it's very specific that your job tonight is to go help people. And, and when I can rest in that, that my job tonight is to go help Clay Miles be his best. That my job tonight is to go help Jordan Lyons be his best. And I have that conversation. I make that agreement with myself. The pressure really starts to go to the wayside because there's no pressure in that. Right. Like if my drive and my intent is to go help Jordan Lyons be his best and to go help my staff be their best, man, there's fun in that. Like there's energy in that. Right. And there, there's vitality. There, there's there's life in that, you know, to where now you change the whole script. Like, man, I've got all this pressure to win for me. OK, where now it's like, hey, man, just go help him. You know, like, like tonight when it's going to get hard, like Bob, there's going to be a call tonight when you don't like what happens. Right. And, and you know what? Clay Mouse ain't going to like it either. And your job is to go help him. And when I do that really well, we usually win, you know, like, like it just, it usually works out. And if we don't win, we usually play well. And, and I think for all of us as leaders, we got to, we got to get down to the motive and we got to figure out what's causing the stress, right? Because most of it's self-inflicted, right? Most of it's ego driven. Most of it is just us not wanting to deal with, with the fear of failure. And when we can change that and say, you know what, my job today is to help the best I can. 
And whatever comes with that, I'm going to be able to go to bed tonight. I think we're all going to be really proud of those results. I love it. I love it. It's it, my mission. I always talk about help others unlock possibility or potential and enjoy success. Like simple as that. And for me, joy is a big word. Um, but I think about the great companies and organizations and how they are service minded and how they are constantly thinking about how they can be in service. And um, I think the best sports teams are too. Do you share that with the players? Like are the players, is that also how you want them thinking is, gosh, am I helping my teammates? Like, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we talk about it, you know, and, and um, you know, because I don't want my drive getting away of this program. And I think that's a flaw in leadership. A lot of times, like our, if our drive gets to a point where the people that are following us sense that and they don't feel like it's authentic, I think you're, you're going to get a clog. Right. So the coolest part about this all is whenever, whenever you create that mindset that like, we're all going out here to help each other, you'd be amazed at like what they end up telling me. And like, like, I'll have players now, you know, that will come up to me before the game and say, hey, let's be loose tonight. And like, they're comfortable with that because we've created that. And, 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 and I've had to go back to them and tell them like, you don't know how much that helps me. You know, like, like when Clay comes by me in the handshake line is like, Hey man, let's just go help each other. You know, like, like that's in, that's like, that fires me up and it's a reminder. And then it's like, Oh, you know what? This isn't as big a deal as we think it is. Like, let's go out there and let's go have fun. And that's where we have the ability to go perform at our best. I've been in gyms, high school, college, pro, uh, and had a front row seat in watching interactions between coaches and players. And there's something too when the player puts his arm around their coach's shoulder and they're having like a frank conversation. And I see it at every level. You can see like, and it, it's so contrary to what so many people think about the power dynamics between coach and player. But you watch it and you see something happen where when the player comes and says, hey, coach, I think we could do X, Y, and Z. And the coach is like, oh, yeah, like, let, let's actually do it. And I've seen it. You know, we saw it with Greg Popovich and Tony Parker where Parker would take the clipboard and say, hey, I got this, coach. And he would like that dynamic, I think, to me, that's what I'm looking for. Like, do they have that connection? And or is it the ego coming out and it's player, coach versus are we in this together? Your staff, so you said the players, you, you haven't had any players transfer out and you don't have anyone that transfer in. Did I hear that right? So we've had some leave, but they haven't left without a degree. Okay. okay. So we've had, we, we've had a couple leave, but they've been more the grad transfer out. We haven't had a single player leave our program without a firm degree in three years. But I would imagine you have coaches that sort of, uh, you know, get other opportunities and, you know, come and go. And I'm sure if you continue to build the program the way you want, you're going to hope that some of them go on to different opportunities. What's it like when you have coaches come and go? And, and, and how do you, I, my question is more about getting the right people on the bus. You mentioned you got to have the right people. So when, if you have a coach that you're bringing in, or if you have a freshman coming in, how do you make sure that they're in the same I don't want to call it mindset or no, have this. this yeah, this is great. Yeah, go, you know what I mean? Like, what, how do you make sure? Because it's, I, I, people, people can interview well, people can uh, show well, but the fact that it sounds like you have a culture where everyone's sort of saying, hey, I'm going to help you, I'm going to help you. I've been around some awesome organizations where one or two people just, they're just different. Like they, they're going against the culture in some way or some capacity. So how do you, how do you spot it? So, so, I made a ton of mistakes 
in this part of the process. I felt like when I got my head job, you know, I had a 60 page plan to win. I'd spent a ton of time figuring out schematics. I spent a ton of time on how we're going to play, what our culture is going to be like. But one of the areas where I struggled was my, my decisions of hiring and not knowing exactly what I was looking for. And, and it wasn't this idea that, hey, this guy's a good guy and this guy's a bad guy. It's got nothing to do with that. Okay. What, what, where I messed up, and it goes back again to this fear of failure, when, when we don't know, okay, how's this going to work out? Well, we want to pe put people around us where we feel safe, right? And so you, you go to this idea of like, all right, I want people I know, I want people I trust, I want people that are common-minded in terms of how they think, what their, what their values are, and what their faith is, and things like that. And so I had, I had, I had some great guys around me, okay? Where I, where I, what I didn't realize is, Coach Sweeney and I, fortunately, I've, I've had the pleasure of building a relationship with him. And he told me this one day as we were talking about staff. He said, Bob, they don't all have to be just like you, but they got to be wired kind of like you. And, and what he meant by that is, is he was as he was going about it and explaining it to me is the, the, the purpose and the drive and what you're trying to get to, that energy, like it, it needs to be the same. Like what you're trying to accomplish, it needs to be the same. Because with, with my personality, and this is why I had to realize that that passion, like I, I can either, I can light it up and this can be great, but that same passion can burn it all down. Right. Like, like, and I've got to know that about myself, that if, if I put a person with me, that is a great human being that has great values, but maybe they just don't quite see like, Hey, we want to go do something that's never been done in Greenville before, right? Like we want to go do something that's huge and we want to have major impact in these kids' lives. And maybe the, the, the end game is just not quite the same. It's not going to work. Right. And so what I had to do was instead of going and getting people that I, you know, I knew or that maybe that I felt like, Hey, this is a good guy. I really started targeting instead of getting somebody and saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get them in our culture and they're going to become us. I started hiring people that were in cultures already that were like the ones that we're trying to create. Okay. So, you know, and I don't mind sharing this. Like, I mean, that's been a big knock on me is like, is he too hard to work for? Because the staff that I hired my, when I first got the job at 34, like I've turned the whole thing over. And so, but what I will say is every hire I've made since after my first year, they're all still with me. Right. And so again, I've learned from this in terms of, yes, I did make some mistakes, but think about the cultures. Strength coach from Florida, ops guy from Virginia, assistant from Xavier, another assistant from Mike Young and Wofford, right? All those cultures are winning ways of people that understand, like, this is what we're trying to do. Well, they all love it. You know, like, like we haven't had a guy leave this year, right? Like, like they're all, and so it took me a while to figure all that out. And, and there was a part of me where like, man, am I screwing all this up? Uh, but it wasn't so much that it was, it wasn't good versus bad. All those guys, I mean, I still talk to a lot of them. They're great people. They just, it's just the alignment of, of the vision and making sure that you've got, you've got total alignment in that. I love that you went to alignment. I use the word fit uh, on a different podcast with a guy named Scott O'Neill, who runs the, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers and the devils and really bright guy. And Scott, I go, Scott, like, how do you know someone's a good fit for your culture? And he's like, I don't look for fit. And I go, huh? And he's like, no, I look for alignment. He's like, fit. I don't want everybody to be just like me, but I want them to have aligned values. And I think that's what you're talking about. I want them to have alignment in how they're wired, how they see the world or whatever you want to, whatever phrase you want to use there. And so I love that you're talking about alignment because I think alignment is massive. Um, 
for any organization and you know, about your athletic director, like, do you guys have alignment on how you see things? It's, it's really important. And I agree with you. A lot of times when things don't work out, it's a lack of alignment. It's, it's, it's not good or bad. Um, it's just the alignment isn't there. The priorities of the values, like everyone talks about values to me, order of values really matter. So we have like humanity on one side and security on another side. Like if I really value security, I might, miss on some of the humanity because I want to secure whatever we need to secure. If I'm going to put humanity first, maybe I'll be a little more laxed on security. It doesn't mean that I don't care about security. And the person that's put in security first doesn't mean they don't value humanity. And I could go into politics because based outside DC, it's what a lot of people like to talk about. To me, like right and left, it's, it's not that they don't have similar values. It's that the order of the values, and I think the order of the values often drives our decisions. So uh, the one thing that I was curious about is you were talking about where all those assistants are coming from. You're saying they're all these winning programs, but you came from all these other programs. You, you mentioned like, you know, 300 and Ken Palm and losing, losing, losing. How do you find the next version of you, even if they're not in a situation that, that is winning? You know, that's a great question. I think, I think for me, just getting deeper into that alignment and having a little bit more self-awareness that what works well inside our organization. And, you know, three years in, that's, that's much clear to me. And, um, you know, the, the processes that we go through when we're trying to hire people is, is much more defined. The decisions I take, I take, I'm much more, you know, when I got the job at 34, you know, it's like, man, we got to get a staff, like we got to get going. Like, and it was like, I, I felt like I was up against the clock. And again, going back to those people above you that have done it, you know, one of my mentors, you know, we were walking around campus one day and he said, hey, what you're going to have to learn is, you know, most people that are leaders, you know, they hire quick and they fire slow. And, and the best leaders, though, flip it and, and they hire slow and they fire quick. And, and it's hard. Right. And, and both sides of that is difficult because you want to hire to get the person in there, but you got to go slow and you got to make sure you're deliberate. You got to find exactly what you're looking for. And then, you know what, if it's not working, you got, you got to make some adjustments and you got to do it the right way. And a lot of times what I've learned as a leader, if you do it the right way, it's probably gonna make you look bad, right? Like if you're, if you're going from the ego, then you got to come out with a statement, Hey, you know, we're firing this person or whatever. If you want to make sure they still have paychecks and you're doing it the right way and you're making sure that they get to the next spot and that they can continue to move on and do what they need to do, it's probably going to come back on you. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Right. And so for me, it's just one of those situations where you've got to learn how to be able to navigate that and you got to be comfortable navigating it. Because a lot of times what you'll realize, like one of the guys that it didn't work. Okay. Like he's still one of my great friends. Like our wives are close. Now we went through a couple months where it was a little rocky. Right. But we've gotten back and like, we talk all the time. Now our wives talk all the time now. And we both acknowledge that, Hey, you know what? We both need this change because it was miserable on both sides of the equation at that particular time because there wasn't that alignment. And, and so it, it's not so much you think, hey, you know, a lot of times if you don't make those tough decisions, you're holding them back, right? Like you're, you're actually holding them back from being able to be able to experience a better life in some ways. And, you know, I've had a lot of fault in it, you know, but I'll tell you this, I've learned a ton from it. And, um, you know, we've got a great staff right now. I mean, it was incredible, you know, all the things that our staff was able to do this year. And, um, you know, like I said, they're all intact. And um, I feel like that's an area where as a leader, you got to continue to evolve there. 
You do some stuff with your players. You already talked about, you know, getting them suits. I know you bring in a lot of speakers to develop them. Uh, but there are a couple of things that stuck out that I heard you talk about, which is like your onboarding for your freshmen and how you make sure that they are um, having a shared language and understanding how you all talk, how you, how you like to do things. Can you talk about that? And then I'll ask my follow-up question uh, around another thing that I was interested about. But I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you think about bringing freshmen in. Yeah, so we, we've got a unique culture. And, um, you know, like I said, I've alluded to some of that and what that looks like here. But it, it's, it's a lot to adapt to and it's a lot to adjust to. And so after my, after my first, you know, year or two, I just said, you know, is there anything that we can do to accelerate this process to where it's, it was like, I mean, it was like culture shock for a lot of these guys, like the amount of workload. I mean, we are, we are, we are deep care, okay, but we are the highest of standard. And we want all, we at all times, we want to be a lead of both of those. And we feel like if the bar ever comes down on either one of them, we're not going to be able to get the output that we want. Well, when they come in and they're not used to that standard, right? And in some ways, they're not even used to the amount of care that we give them. It was just like, it was taking them like a year to figure this thing out. And so I just was trying to figure out, you know, is there anything we can do to accelerate that? And so we do our all den Academy two weeks in the summer. I do it myself. I'm with the freshmen. It's an hour long, sometimes for two. It's very basic. It's, it's not rocket science. It's, it's, it's like, hey, here's the deal. We're going to go. You're going to go in the weight room. You're going to have your first weight workout. So before we go in there, we're going to take an hour and we're going to go through our expectations. What my is, is head coach for you in the weight room. Here's our strength coach. Here's his expectation. And then guess what? We're going to then walk into the weight room and we're going to go try to do that. Right. And so it's all it's all lumped together. Right. At some point, you've got to go demonstrate and then they've got to be able to fail in that demonstration. The worst thing that we do in some of these acclimation programs, it's all lecturing. Right. Like it's all talking. Right. It's 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 them just gathering information. They're not really learning how to apply it. Right. And so we'll film that. And then the next day in Alden Academy, we'll pop it up there and say, hey, look at this body language right here in the weight room like this. We this is not what we do. Now, look at this response. This is what we do. We want to see more of this today, right? And so there's there's much more of a feel, and it's the same thing. Hey, all right, now we're going to go do a skill workout. Here's your position coach. Here's what I expect. Here's what he expects. All right, now let's walk down and do it, and then we're going to give you feedback. And so it's not just this sit down, take notes, you know, blah, 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 and then it's just a drain. We want to put some application, and we want to put some practicality to what we're talking about, and then we want to give them opportunity to fail. You know, I think that's critical. Um, that they've got that opportunity to fail. You mentioned uh, getting, having some coaches or having a reputation that some coaches say you're hard to work for. I remember I listened to a podcast with you where you were talking about getting 360 feedback from the players. Um, and I'm curious what that looked like for you or what does that look like for you getting feedback from your players? Do you also get feedback from your staff? What does feedback look like to the head coach as a, as a leader? Um, I'm curious to get your perspective on that. So that that's another area where, you know, I feel like I've, I've grown a little bit. You know, I think that, again, we go so fast. You know, I'll hit on the staff piece first. We did something this year that was new, and I thought it really helped. When I went back and I, and I self-reflected on, on some of the, the staff members that have been here you know, yes, there's always situations where I wish I wish it would have worked, right? Well, here's what's wrong. What could I have done better? A lot of times what you realize is if you could have just gotten the information on the table, you know, sometimes you can solve it. So what, what I did this year, and I thought it was great, a couple times through the year, we just had these one-on-ones of five things. 
And so what I would tell the staff is I would say, look, I'm going to have five things I want to address with you. And you're going to have five things that you want to address with me. All right. You're going to go first and I'm going to go second. All right. So I'm going to listen to you first and we're going to work through your list. And then I'm going to go through my list. And here's what happened, Brian. A lot of times what happened is like when they went through their five, two or three of them would have been on my list. Right. And so we both knew there was something that needed to be worked through. And then, and so now I cross a couple off and then what I'm able to do is I'm able to solve those issues. We're able to communicate through that. I'm able to affirm them in some other areas and they would just walk out of the office. Like there were bricks off their shoulders, you know? And like, but like, it's a, it's a hard conversation. Like it's uncomfortable. You know what I mean? It's uncomfortable for the employee, but then it's also uncomfortable for me because I don't know what I'm about to get shot with. Right. And, and like, and I give them freedom. Like you can say whatever you want to say in these deals. And, and it's just five things. And then, and then I do it with the next one. And, and it makes me a better leader. You know, like, like I feel more in tune. There's things that I, that are in my blind spots. They're easily to be fixed. If you don't fix them though, here's what's going to happen. This is my experience. If you don't address them, then they're going to go to the other guy that's struggling and they're going to go to the coffee shop and they're going to try to talk about it. And it's all going to be negative. And then as the leader, you don't know what's going on. And so, um, you know, I think that's been huge in, in, in me trying to be able to get to some of those issues a little bit quicker. Uh, one of the things I think we have in common, we have a lot in common, but one of the things is getting information outside of sports and trying to figure out how to apply it to a basketball team. So one of the, the groups that I love to study are the Blue Angels, who fly fighter pilots, you know, within feet of each other, hundreds of miles an hour. Uh, and there's a great documentary. It was on Amazon Prime. I don't know if they took it down, uh, but you can actually get, you can get most of it on YouTube. But the Blue Angels have this debriefing process. It's really, really cool. So they have spotters that are on the ground that watch the entire flight. So those spotters give their feedback. Then they sit around a table and each pilot goes around and says what, how their flight went. And they'll say, oh, maybe I should have gone left and instead of right. Or I, you know, my march out to the plane wasn't exactly like it needed to be. And they'll get, they'll drill down on like every specific. And so they'll own it. And then they always end by saying, and I'll fix it. And so they take ownership. They say, and I'll fix it. I'm going to fix the, the problem. And then at the end, they have this phrase, which is glad to be here. And they always end the debrief by saying, we're glad to be here because being a blue angel is tough. They wake up at like five in the morning they go over their flight plan, then they go fly, then they debrief. It's, 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 a, it's a strenuous job to get those planes to be moving like they move them uh, and to be in, in alignment with each other. But they always want to remind themselves that they're glad to be there and they don't want to ever lose sight that this is a privilege to be a blue, uh, they call them the blues, to be a blue angel is a privilege. And they've got brothers and sisters flying overseas behind enemy lines and they're fortunate to be able to represent uh, the Navy and, and all that other stuff. But um, as I'm hearing you talk about those five things, when you have transparency, a lot of times people know what they need to get done, what they need to do to be better. And a lot of times we become defensive when we are in a place of threat or, or we're being challenged. And to have that space where you're, you're A, vulnerable and you're stepping into Brene Brown, courage and vulnerability, and you're stepping into that. You're saying, hey, I'm, I'm no different. Like, there's no rank here. And the blues talk about, like, rank doesn't come into play when we're doing the debrief. It doesn't matter who you are. We'll take it from anyone. We'll get it from the spotter who's not even flying in there. We'll, we'll get it from film. Um, so there's a cool, I'll send you it. There's a cool uh, clip of them debriefing, and it's really, really powerful. Um, have you, have you, go ahead. Did you have something you were going to say? I was just going to add something to that because I wanted to be clear anybody that I'm trying to help, like 
you know, I don't think you can savage all those situations. So I don't want it to sound like, hey, you know, do the five things and everything's going to be perfect. You know, what I've learned from this in terms of hiring and employees, you know, I, I think you can almost group people in, in four components a little bit. I think you got the cynics. I think those people are negative. I think they got all the answers and they have no solutions, right? And I think you got to you got to you got to rid those of your organization. You can't have them in there. You can be friends with them. Don't let them work for you, right? If they've got all the answers and they're going to challenge everything, but they're not going to work towards solutions and they're all going to be negative, you got to get them out. The next phase, you got the compliant. They're going to do everything you ask them, right? They're going to they're, they're going to do all the checks, right? They're going to do everything you ask them. They're not they're not that next phase though. They're not committed, right? They're they're just compliant. They want their job. They want their paycheck. And, and, and then you got the committed, which they're willing to do what they got to do. It's a, it's a mental decision, right? They're, they're trying to be great. And a lot of times it's for themselves. Then you got the compelled, right? And that's where that heart gets in it, where now all of a sudden this is heart driven. This is others driven. And I've got a high vision. I've got a high purpose. The, the interesting thing is the cynic is going to go after the compliant. And I've seen this firsthand, okay? The compliant doesn't even know that they're a target. And the cynic is going to see him because the cynic knows he can't get to, to the committed or the compelled. He's got no chance. They're, they're, they're past that. So what they do is they aim at the, they aim and they sit there and they, they pray on the compliant. And over time, they take the compliant to the coffee shop. They take them and then they pull them and they make them a cynic. And so now you got people inside your organization that are dividing it. And so when you see that, you got to get rid of that, right? You got to be constantly trying to get people in this compelled stage and then all of a sudden, those five, those five things, those those conversations now becomes all about, hey, how can we be the best we can be? If you think about, you've got what, let's just say 15 players, whatever, 12, 15, let's just say 15 players and then five staff. So let's call it 20 people. What's the mixture that you're hoping to have with committed and compelled? You know, I think there's going to be a lot more committed people, even in great organizations than compelled. I think compelled is unique. I think compelled is a is a five percent type category right um i think i think committed is a lot easier you know it's a lot easier to be committed um and and, and that's going to be that's going to be a higher number and then now now the, the the really great cultures are now you've got people going from committed to compelled right and that's that's where you really see some magic take place because the compelled people that, that you know our staff we've talked about this a lot how can you how can you visually see a difference between somebody that's committed and compelled the compelled person is always going to go try to get a committed guy and get them to be compelled, right? The committed person never usually goes and grabs another guy to pull them along, right? Because it's more about self-serving. It's more about, I want this to work out for me. And so, so you're, you're, you're always trying to get that compelled person to bring another with him. Um, and, and you know what, there, there's room inside organizations for the compliant, you know, in terms of some entry level, you know, there, there, there's, I'm not saying you got to go fire all your, all your, you know, guys that are compliant, but you better, you better get, you know, some people call them cynics nicely. Others call them cowards, you know, whatever you want to fill in the blank there, but, but you got to make sure that those are outside of your organization. It's interesting to think about the difference between a cynic and a contrarian, someone who's going to challenge the status quo, someone who's going to make you think, um, and, and like just making that distinction really clear, which is the contrarians looking for more maybe solutions and trying to come up with the alternative ways to do things. Whereas a cynic is just sitting in the corner saying wrong, wrong, don't do this, that, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and so there's, there's a distinction there that's really important to make because a contrarian can be really, really valuable to an organization. And, uh, the book I'm reading right now is Range by David Epstein. Have you read Range? I've not. It's really good. And it actually hits on a bunch of themes that you've talked about 
already. David wrote The Sports Gene a couple years ago, which was an incredible book also on physiology physiology and and goes back to the nature nurture that we started this conversation with, which is also a great book. So shout out to David for just being an incredible author. Um, But anyway, in range, he talks about bringing in people that will challenge how you think about things and how often we just hire people that think the way that we think. And then that's where we often make mistakes. So the value in bringing an outsider in to give a different perspective, to challenge maybe how you're seeing things is, is really, really important. Yeah, and I think I think that's an in, easy distinguisher. I think that with the with the cynic, you're going to have a lot of negativity, right? And and it's going to be tearing down what the organization is actually trying to do. The contrarian, you're you're usually going to see somebody that's a thinker that is that is coming up with an alternative solution, and you can see the vested interest in the organization, right? It's apparent. Like they're never they're never getting into this element that hey, they're gonna they're the the ones that really scare you are the ones that they'll sit in a staff meeting, they won't say anything. Right. They'll, they'll complain about a few things. And then when they leave staff meeting, they got all the answers. Right. And, and all of a sudden they're trying to give all the answers to all these different people. I think that's that's an e- easy distinguisher as long as you have as long as you have your eyes on it. Yeah, it's interesting because I've always thought of myself as pretty contrarian, but I'm also pretty optimistic. So like when you blend the optimism with the contrary nature, for me, it's like always, hey, what can we do better? Let's create, let's do this and evolve and develop and innovate. Um, the last thing I was curious to just get your perspective on is sports psychology and, and what you also do to develop your staff. So we've talked a lot about the players and, and we've talked a little bit about the staff as well. Um, but I, in doing my research for this, it was clear, like, gosh, you know, Bob is really serious about providing everything he can to his players to make sure that they are developing as people. Um, so I'm curious where sports psychology plays there. And then the secondary piece is for me, like, I love executive coaching. I love coaching sports coaches. I'm curious if you do anything to try to develop your staff as well. So it's a two-part question. The first, more in the sports psychology realm for your athletes, and the second, more in the executive coaching realm for your staff. So with the staff, the first thing, you know, I had, I had two things, you know, whatever contract Mike Buddy put in front of me when I got the job, I was going to sign it. It didn't matter, right? I was an assistant. And so I didn't have any leverage. But the two things I did ask for in my first contract is I asked for family travel uh, for my family. And, and I also asked for a line item to be put in for continued education for the staff. And I feel like that's something where, you know, we just don't do enough of in our business. And there's a couple of reasons why, you know, everybody thinks there's all these secrets out there and people are you know, don't, don't share information, but I try to, I try to. Hey Bob, do you, do you think like that? Cause it's pretty clear that like, that is a, that's real. Like there are people in the sports world that they don't want to give away. They don't want to share. Um, we could have this conversation even more in depth, but how do you think about sharing, sharing knowledge and sharing how you guys do things? You know, I heard somebody say this a couple of weeks ago and, and, I, and I've kind of thought it made a ton of sense, but you know, a, a candle never loses anything for lighting another candle. You know what I mean? Like, like, I just don't, I don't, it's still going to come down to how they replicate it and how their systems are in place for it. Like, I don't think this idea that if we go and try to help somebody that that's going to hurt us. Right. Like I, I don't, I don't see that. Um, and, and I think also it gives us, it gives us some more purpose, right? Like it allows us to, to help better somebody else and, and it gives us influence. And why would we, why would we negate that opportunity? You know, I think, I think that's, to be honest with you, I think it's selfish and I think it hurts our game. And um, it hurts our opportunity to be able to influence. But, you know, I want to make sure that our staff has the ability to do this. And I think, you know, assistance, you know, this is super general here. But a lot of times you got these head coaches, they're ball coaches, they're going to call the plays, they're going to in basketball, like they're going to coach the team. 
I need to hire three assistants to go get me players. Well, that fails development, right? And then these guys that have never done anything tactically or from a culture standpoint, now they get their head coaching job and they're not prepared because they haven't coached. And so what I tell our guys is this, I want to give you freedom, right? I want to give you areas to be accountable, but you've got to be willing to own that and you've got to be ready to go perform in that area. And you need to make sure that you're studying and that you're training to be ready for that. And so I tell them, you know, watch a program through the year. Uh, we, we, we talk about it, you know, trying to find programs that are similar to us. Each assistant, you know, has a program that they watch and they kind of self-scout. They'll go to those staffs. They'll go on those campuses and they'll try to get some ideas there. And then I also think in our Further the Man program, which is our systematic way of developing leaders in our program and teaching them how to win at life. The beautiful thing about it, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's all year, okay? There's very few things that don't apply to the player that also don't apply to the staff member. So as they're, you know, like Jay Bella spoke to our team on Friday and did a phenomenal job. And, you know, I mean, I had a staffer, you know, you got to tell me he took five pages of notes, right? So it wasn't like, okay, well, this is a team item, right? So Jay can only help our players, right? Like staff member walks out of that with five pages of notes. So he became a better coach that day, right? Uh, General Dempsey, you know, former, you know, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Okay. He came and spent two hours with our program last summer. Well, you know, every single person that walked out of that got better from that. You know, he's involved in USA basketball and like, is he, you know, like every single person. So my point is this, as we're growing people and that's why it's growing people, it's not growing players. As we're growing people, our staff is also having all this opportunity. You know, the 32 speakers we had last year, that was 32 moments that staff got the ability to get better. And so that's for me, you know, the drive is to grow people and, and the byproduct is the player is going to grow with it. The staff member, the coach, whatever you want to fill in the blank, they're all going to get better from it. And, you know, like right now we're going through a, we're going through legacy together as a team, you know, a book about the all blacks and our players are leading it. Okay. And so we do a chapter every Tuesday, our players are leading it. Each player takes a week. They come up with the questions, they get the dialogue going and our staff learn it from that, you know, like, like, so, I don't think, again, you know, I'm not a big, as you can probably tell, I'm not this big compartmentalist. Like, I want to figure out ways where we can all grow together. And I think that's the beauty of the Further the Man program. Awesome. I think that's a beautiful place for us to stop. Bob, where can people follow along on what you're doing, what the program's doing? Let us know social media and anything else you're passionate about that you just want to give a megaphone to. I always just let my guests promote anything that they think is, is worth promoting. Yeah, I mean, our program, you'll see a lot of this on social media. Furman Hoops is, is going to be Twitter and also Instagram. And then um, my, my individual Twitter is Coach Richie, R-I-C-H-E-Y. And then if you want to hit me directly, the best way is my email, bob.richie, R-I-C-H-E-Y, at Furman, F-U-R-M-A-N, dot E-D-U. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Coach, we could go for another hour, but we've gone for long enough. And I know you got your family and your puppy behind you. And I got my kids and, and we both have a little more work to do for the rest of the day. So we're going to try to integrate all that together. But this has been really fun. Looking forward to continuing to learn from you and exchanging some information. Enjoy Legacy. What a book. Freaking awesome book. Um, so hopefully your guys will sweep the sheds and, and enjoy that book and, and take a lot from it. Uh, thank you for your time. Thanks for everything you're doing. And uh, I just love your message and how you're communicating it.
and being willing to share. And, you know, I, I see it in, in the corporate world. I can get a bunch of CEOs together and they all learn from each other and they all grow and they're not worried about stealing and this and that. And I'm hopeful and optimistic uh, partially thanks to this conversation that sports coaches are going to be more willing to continue to share. Cause I think we all rise with the rising tide. Right. Um, so thanks for being here. Appreciate you and looking forward to meeting you in person at some point as well. Sounds good. Appreciate your time, Brian, and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. If my greatness is all about me, I, I just, I feel like that's fleeting, you know, but if, if my search for greatness can impact somebody else to the, where they want to go be the best version of themselves and we can influence that, then that, that gives me a, a higher purpose.